And as he, of course, when these kids grow up, he started, he was here, and now he's going to be here next time I see him. It's crazy how that works. So we love you. And I got through it. Awesome. And this is why I had a guest speaker come this Sunday, because I figured I was going to be a blubbery mess. No, God just plans all of this stuff up. So I'm really excited to have Rebecca Thornburg preaching here this morning. If you don't know Rebecca, uh, Rebecca, her family has been a part of our ministry here for decades. Uh, Rebecca has actually served for 14 years as a missionary with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. We have supported her as a church for years and years in her work as a missionary, both here in Canada and when she was serving in France. And then she went and got her master's degree at Regent College in Vancouver. And now she serves at First Baptist Church in Vancouver, where for the last five years, and she serves as the pastor of discipleship and community. So we're really excited, Rebecca, to have you not come just to give a missions update, but actually come and bring the word of God to us and bless us with that. So why don't you come on up? I'm going to pray for you. And so, Lord, we thank you and praise you for how you knit the body of Christ together. And, Lord, as your word is being shared with us from your servant, Rebecca, I pray, God, that you would bless us, teach us, and shape us into the image of Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you. Well, good morning, everyone, and good morning to those watching from home as well. Um, Yeah, it feels like such a privilege to be speaking here this morning. As Pastor Kevin mentioned, I grew up at Greenbelt. I was born into this church. You supported me through my time in France with InterVarsity, and it just felt like such a gift to be invited back. So thank you so much for that. What would you say is your earliest experience of God, and how did you see him at that time, if you have one? For me, growing up in the church, God has always been part of my life from a very early age. So I would say that my first kind of tangible experience of him was as a child. I have this memory of playing at school. I was running in the playground, and I tripped, and I fell, and I hit my head. And I got one of these, like, you know, big goose eggs. It swole up, like it swole up. And I went to the office, and I remember I was waiting for my mom to come pick me up. And I was, I was panicking a little bit. Um, being a bit of an anxious child, I think I thought I was going to die or something. Like, this was very serious. Now, I had been taught as a child that God was someone who was with me in all circumstances and that I could reach out to at any time. And so I did that. And this incredible peace settled over over me in that moment. And I wasn't afraid anymore, which was really unusual for me as a child. In that moment, I knew God as the one who was present with me in all circumstances. And somehow it was his presence with me that really mattered. Since then, over the years, my view of God has shifted and changed through different circumstances of life. The author A.W. Tozer wrote that what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Maybe because it shapes how we live and it shapes how we relate to him. But it can be easy not to see God as he actually is. And often God is not who we expect him to be. I remember reading this article last year, and the author reflected that these days people aren't so much asking the question of whether or not God is real, but of whether or not God is good. As we live amidst stories of injustice and prejudice and where we're quick to draw lines in the sand of who's in and who's out, it's easy to see why some people might question the goodness of God. 
Yes, they might nod their heads. Jesus made a way for us to know God. But is this this the kind of God they would like to know if they could? Sometimes we need to have our perception of God refocused. Now, it's true that the church itself has done things in the past it may need to repent of. But does the Christian God live up to all the bad press he's received? Or have we just bought into the fake news out there about what God is really like and about what the call to follow Jesus is all about? Now, I think the best way to get to the bottom of this is to look at Jesus himself, God made flesh. He claimed that to see him was also to see God the Father. I and the Father are one, said Jesus. And so we can find out a lot by looking at how he lived and at what he taught. Now, if you've spent any time reading the Gospels, you'll have noticed that Jesus often taught in parables, in stories. As humans, there's something about stories that captures our attention, that really speaks to us. And parables are stories that invite us to look for answers. And in doing so, they weed out those who didn't really care to know in the first place from those who are looking for truth. Theologian Kenneth Bailey, whose work I'll draw from a bit in this sermon, describes parables as houses that we inhabit for a time, which allow us to see the world from a different perspective. And I really like this picture. As we immerse ourselves in a parable, it gives us a different point of view. And we can look out the various windows to see what the world looks like from that vantage point. Now, one of the most well-known parables, and I'm sure you know it, is the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15, verses 11 to 31. And this is what we're going to look at today. But we might want to retitle it the parable of the unexpected God, because often God is different from what we expect. Now, if you have a Bible with you or if you want to follow along on your phone, you're welcome to do that as well. So let's enter into this story together. Let's settle down in a chair on the front porch and take a look at what God looks like from this perspective. Let me tell you a story. There was once a man who had two sons, an older and a younger, obviously. Now, this family didn't live in 21st century Ottawa like we do today, but over 2,000 years ago in the Middle East. So instead of golden autumns and snowy winters, you might want to picture dusty roads, date palms, and olive groves. One day, the younger of these two sons comes to his father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, this wasn't a normal thing to ask at the time. This son's request was a slap in the face. It would be more like if he said, Dad, let's make plans for your funeral, or why don't we put the house in my name so that I can sell it out from under you? He was expressing that he had absolutely no use for his father beyond what he could get from him. Father, he was saying, I wish you were already dead because my life would be a lot better off without you. Can you imagine saying something like that to your own father? What about saying something like that to God? God, I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm just going to live as if you didn't even exist. Bailey believes that this is actually getting at the core of what sin is. For Jesus, he writes, sin is desiring the death of God and wanting to take his gifts without reference to the giver. 
It's wanting to make it completely on our own. It's the shattering of a relationship. It's this son's total rejection of his father. Now, I don't know about you, but the reaction that I would expect would be anger and outrage and his father to absolutely say no to this request. But that's not what happens. We simply read, so he divided the property between them. So both sons receive an early inheritance. The property and lands were made out in both of their names. But while the older son stays working on the estate, the younger takes it a step further. We read, the younger son got together all he had, which basically means he sold off the property he received and his portion of the family business as well. While the older son remained, the younger got rid of it all. Now, this is no longer a private family matter, but a very public one. Everyone would have known. The community was aware of the shame that this younger son had brought on his father. I bet it was a topic of gossip at the local coffee shop. How embarrassing for this respected patriarch to have had such a son and expressions of relief that at least their children hadn't done such a thing. And so the son leaves, and we learn that he goes to a distant country and squanders all his wealth on wild living. Maybe he goes to Vegas, hires some prostitutes, and gambles the rest away. When all the money is finally gone, a famine comes to the place where he is. Now, we don't experience famines very much these days in Canada, but you might want to picture a pandemic hitting and the son being unable to find work or food prices shooting sky high so that he can no longer afford what he needs to live. So being desperate, he just takes whatever job he can, which at this time was feeding pigs. Maybe the most degrading job that a Jewish person could do at the time, given that pigs are unclean. And despite having this job, he's still starving, unable to eat even what the pigs are given. One day, while going out to feed the pigs, he starts to think back to where he grew up and what life was like living in his father's house. And he has this moment of clarity. Even his father's servants have enough to eat. And here he is starving to death. What if he was to go back and just suggest being a servant in his father's house? At least he'd be better off than he is now. And he begins to rehearse what he might say. He'll say to him, I'll say to him, he thinks, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, for the people listening to Jesus' story at this time, this speech would have brought to mind another speech given by another unrepentant person. Early on in the history of the people of Israel, God sent a man named Moses to the Egyptian Pharaoh with a request to free his enslaved people. Pharaoh repeatedly says no, and God sends plague after plague. Pharaoh keeps seeming to change his mind, and he'll let them go, but then at the last second, he won't let them leave. Um, for example, after a devastating plague of locusts, Pharaoh says to Moses in Exodus 10, I have sinned against the Lord God and against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. But these words were hollow. He was only saying what he needed to say to get what he wanted, and so was this younger son. 
His choice of words show that at this point, there's no real repentance. He doesn't want to fix the relationship with his father. He's just trying to get what he wants. Father, he rehearses to himself, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But despite his mixed motivation, it sends him home. I wonder if that's sometimes the case for us when it comes to God. People look for God for a whole bunch of different reasons, but often it's when we reach the end of ourselves. When there's absolutely no alternative, that's when we call out to him. When life is good and comfortable, we may not see a need for God. We're handling things just fine on our own, thank you very much. But when illness or death or pandemics or wars hit and we don't know what to do, that's when we pray and risk asking for the help that we can't give ourselves. God, I know that I don't deserve to have you listen to me. I haven't spoken to you in years, but if you are there, please help. But even if that's our motivation, I think that's okay. Because whatever the reason is that we travel back to God, the outcome is the same. And the next part of the story will tell us why. So back to our story. The younger son makes this long trip home, one that I'm sure is even more difficult because of the famine. And he rehearses his speech over and over, practicing his posture of humility. And as he's finally nearing home, but still a good distance away, his father sees him. You know, I wonder if he'd been watching, keeping an eye out each day just in case this son might come home. And he's filled with compassion, and he runs to his son. This highly respected Middle Eastern patriarch, in a very undignified way, lifts up his cloak and sprints towards his son. Reaching him, he throws his arms around him, and he kisses him. Now, the younger son, taken by surprise, starts to stumble through his prepared speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. But before he can even finish, his father interrupts and says to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And he begins to throw a party. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost but is found and the party begins. Let's stop here for just a moment and observe the scene from our front porch view. Food is cooking and you can smell the roasted meat. The neighbors are beginning to trickle by bit by bit and music and dancing is just starting up. What would you say is your image of God today? When you think about God, what comes to mind? Do you picture a God who doesn't care when people suffer, who watches wars and says good riddance, or maybe a taskmaster who worries a lot about whether or not you are following all the rules, an angry judge, or someone who likes to throw lavish parties for wayward children? In the Bible, God is often referred to as a father, and I think that sometimes people can have a hard time with this if they've struggled with their own fathers. And yet, as I was doing reading in preparation for this sermon, one thing I read just really jumped out at me. Scripture makes it clear that God is not like a father, but rather like this father. This is the kind of father that God's like. Often God is not who we expect him to be. 
I think that Jesus must know that we can struggle with our view of God. Throughout the centuries, people have wrestled to wrap their minds around what God is really like. And here Jesus wants to set the record straight. God is just not like any father. He's like this father. And what is this father like? He's full of compassion. Moved by compassion, he runs to his son. Even after all that he had done and said, even after the shame he brought on the whole family, this father doesn't even wait to hear the whole apology before throwing a party. And in doing so, this father defies stereotypes. You may have noticed that there's no mother in this story. That's because this father has the characteristics of both. Bailey writes, and I need to read to you this quote because I think it's really good. He writes, when the father runs down the road to welcome the prodigal, he is doing what a mother would normally do. The father is the parent who's expected to remain aloof in the house, waiting to hear what his wayward boy has to say for himself. The mother is permitted and even expected to run down the road and shower the dear boy with kisses. Jesus gives us a portrait of a father who acts with the tender compassion of a mother. A father who is also like a mother, a mother-like father. This is what God is like. What does this mean for us? Knowing that God is compassionate is significant because it means that we can come to him at any point in our lives, no matter how we've lived or what we've done, trusting that his first response will be one of compassion. This parable shows us that we've never moved so far away from God that there's no way back to him. And we're invited to show this same compassion to others. We too can be lavish with our forgiveness. But the story doesn't end there. It picks up with the elder son. And where is he? We have to look away from the party to find him because he's not there. He's slowly coming in from the fields after a long day at work. And as he approaches the house, he hears the music and asks one of the servants, what's going on? Your brother has come, the servant tells him, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Discovering that this party was for his younger brother, the one who brought such shame and heartbreak onto his family, He's angry, and he refuses to come in the house. As the respected older son, his absence would have been noticed by the guests. And when his father hears about this, he gets up from the table and leaves the party, a social faux pas for the host, and goes to where his son is to beg him to come inside. The older son, in his self-righteous anger, snaps back, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replies, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. You know, we discover here that the older son is equally lost, even though he never left home. He did everything right, 
when his brother did everything wrong, but neither has a right relationship with their father. Both sons are lost. And both think that it's by working that they can get back to their father's good graces, that working will make them worthy of belonging. The prodigal son wants to work his way back in, and the older son thinks he's deserving of more because he's worked so hard. But both of them miss the point. It was never about what they did or did not do. It was about simply accepting their father's love and the place they already possessed in his house as his children. For us today, too, doing the right thing all the time is not the same thing as having a right relationship with God. I think having grown up in the church, this is a trap that I get caught in. I I put pressure on myself to do everything right. I know that I can't earn my way to God, but sometimes I live as if I could, and this misses the whole point. Jesus certainly never bothered to hang out with the right people or be seen in the right places or be doing what was expected of him. Why would he expect anything different of us? If you find yourself to be a rule keeper like me, how do we react when we see others welcomed into the church who haven't kept all the rules? Maybe people who've walked away from their faith for a time but heard, have heard God's call to come back. Or those who are working through a whole range of struggles and are coming to the church wanting to meet God in some way. Do we get angry and jealous because they haven't earned a place in our midst? Because we think we deserve more? I think our response to this can show where our hearts are at. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. The older son got his inheritance, too. He didn't lose anything of what he'd been given with his younger son coming home. But we had to celebrate and be glad, the father says, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I think that really this party was actually for the father, a way to express his joy at the prodigal's return, And he didn't want his older son to miss out. Again, it's this father who's highlighted here. And we see here that he's characterized not only by compassion, but by costly initiative. It was costly for him to welcome his wayward son home. But it was also costly for him to leave the party and beg his older son to come in. Publicly leaving a celebration to seek a son who had insulted him by not being present. To prioritize making things right. Along with compassion and costly initiative, here we see a father who invites his children to joy. He wants them to join the celebration. If sin is defined as wishing that God was dead and wanting to make it on our own, repentance is accepting the welcome back. It means rejoining the party. It's saying yes to an invitation to joy, to accept a place in the family, knowing that we don't have to work for it. Despite his mixed motivations for returning, the prodigal accepts his father's welcome and the relationship is restored. He joins the party. Whatever our motive is in coming to God, we are welcome. God will cut off our stumbling apology midway and welcome us to the celebration. And for those of us who have lost sight of God in our attempt to do everything right, maybe he's calling us to leave the field for a time and join the party. 
so that we don't forget that we already possess the very thing we were working so hard for. And this is where the story ends. We aren't told what happens next. It's a, it's a cliffhanger in a way. How will the older son respond? Will the younger son stay home this time? If it was, this was a Netflix show, I would definitely wait till at least the beginning of the next episode to see what was going to happen. But while we don't know the future choices of these sons, the image painted here of the father remains unchanging in his compassion, in his costly initiative, and in his invitation to joy. Um, in my parents' house, they have this painting in the living room of this parable, a picture of the, his, the son on his knees before his father. And this always comes to mind when I read this as well. I think that if we stop and stare long and hard enough at the image described to us of the father in this story, we might find that he starts to look like someone else. Someone else who offered compassion to those who were unwelcome. Someone who took the most costly initiative of all. As we gaze at this image of the father, maybe we see the years start to fall away and the beard darkens. And we realize that standing before us is Jesus himself. What does all of this mean for us today? This parable shows us that God has compassion on our life circumstances. Whatever we've been struggling with, whatever our background or baggage, we can come to God knowing that compassion will be his first response. We see this compassion in Jesus himself. On Palm Sunday, for example, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem to a cheering crowd, what's the first thing he does when he gets to the city? He weeps. We see Jesus in Luke 19 crying over Jerusalem, weeping over the blindness of the people, even those who are about to put him to death. This parable also shows us that God takes costly initiative. Jesus himself went out to eat with tax collectors and sinners, and ultimately he gave up his life on the cross to make relationship with God even possible for us. And his initiative continues today. In my own life, I've certainly experienced moments of what seems to be divine initiative. These can come in times of conversation, unexpected events, a feeling of peace instead of fear, or maybe like the prodigal son, a moment where we're reminded that God is there. Let's pay attention to God's intervention and his initiative in our lives. And this parable also shows us that God loves to celebrate, to invite us back to joy. In the book of James, he writes that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. There is a lot of hardship in our world, but the author of the good in the midst of it is God himself. The good of community, of family, of relationships. God provides a home to return to in the midst of famine. This parable shows us that God is often not who we expect him to be. God is a compassionate, mother-like father who takes costly initiative to make sure that none of his children miss the party. God takes the initiative to bring us back to joy. Let me just pray for us to close. Father God, we ask that you would forgive us.
for buying into any untruths that we believe about what you are like. Help us to see you as you really are and to accept the welcome that you extend to us. Thank you for your love and for your compassion. In Jesus' name, amen.